Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. I'm delighted to say I'm with my somewhat new friend, Jonathan Taplin, uh, here in his office at the University of Southern California. And, John, tell me what's up, what you're doing, what's happening. Well, um, the most exciting things happening right now are around uh, the USC Annenberg Innovation Lab. Mm-hmm. And the Innovation Lab is a relatively new venture. It's about four years old um, that seeks to make a bridge between the academic world that myself, Henry Jenkins, Francois Barr, uh, Cape Con work in, and the, the firms that are trying to make communications and technology at the center of their business. So Warner Brothers, Fox, IBM, Cisco, you know, and, and so there's, you know, there's been a lot of discussion for quite a few years that uh, kind of Northern California versus Southern California, mm-hmm. that, that mm-hmm. you know, the, the disruptive nature of Silicon Valley has completely upended the businesses of Hollywood or the music business or the journalism business. And, mm-hmm. and um, so we're hoping that we can push forward some ideas around something we're calling the imagination economy and where technology and content get more integrated and the two aren't battling each other. Because that often sees struggles within corporations and certainly between Northern and Southern California, doesn't it? Yeah, I I think, you know, one of the classic examples of this was the Sony Corporation, you know, which, which was, you know, essentially was a technology corporation and you know, when you and I were young, the notion of portable music was owned by Sony, the Walkman, the Discman, and everything like that. And then when Sony decided that it needed content, it went and bought, you know, Columbia Pictures and Columbia Records. And um, so it, it acquired all this content. And then when the digital age arose and Napster and all this thing mm-hmm. came up, the the people in the technology group needed to say wanted to make an MP3 player, <laughs> but the people in the content group didn't want them to make an MP3. That's player. our property you're stealing. Right. What are you talking about? Right. right. And and so <laughs> they allowed basically Apple to steal the game completely. And today, you don't even think of Sony as a portable music machine. It doesn't exist. Uh, they don't have any skin in the game. And, you know, there are a few attempts to be in the cell phone business for a complete failure. So, I mean, it's a, you, you know, it's an interesting problem. And so it's not easy. And, um, but, you know, I come at it from a place where I think there is a huge amount of hype around, for instance, the summer. People said, oh, it's the largest box office gross summer in six years. Right. And yet, if you look underneath the covers, it was the biggest loss summer in the history of the movie business. Because eight or ten movies just went totally in the toilet. And, you know, so Hollywood has two metrics, one of which is the total amount of money taken in at the ticket booth. But they never tell you how much the movies cost. Well, they tell you, but it's a lie. 
Yeah. <laughs> they and they, they don't, announce it and, to Variety and, and Hollywood Report. But they never tell you how much all the marketing costs. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. Yeah. the notion of profitability or return on investment is not a secret that they want to reveal. So this notion that this was a great summer is a complete lie. Yeah. Um, so one of the problems is, and you know, this is a, it's a tricky one, is that there may be too much content. You know, there may be the fact that seven movies open on any given weekend is just too much. And that it creates a self-fulfilling prophecy that they're all going to die because you, there's just not enough people around to go see seven movies in a weekend. And so maybe one will emerge do well and five or six will just do terribly because they eat each other's lunch. And so that's one of the problems. But then you, you extend that out a little farther and you look at cable TV. There's 400 plus channels on my direct TV system. I may watch nine channels if I'm lucky, but I'm paying for 400 channels. Does that make sense? And why is someone creating 24 7, 365 days programming for all these other 390 channels I don't watch? Um, does it make sense for the 25 million who do watch ESPN to be subsidized by the 75 million people who don't watch it? Um, to the tune of $5 a month for each household, um, whether you watch it or not. So these are the kind of questions we're yeah, interested kind of in. For, for those listeners outside the United States, Senator John McCain is one of the people involved at the moment in what will no doubt be a complete failure, but he's a great idea, which is liberating Jonathan and me from the hell yeah. of paying for this entire menu. It's as though you're going to a restaurant, and in order to have a glass of milk, You've got to buy a roast duck, and not only a roast duck, but 17 pheasants as well. In fact, you've got to buy every fucking thing on the menu. Exactly. As McCann says, <laughs> the cable customers have all the choice of a Soviet-era election ballot. <laughs> well, in a way, except what that muddied with the unnecessary overproduction of U.S. capital. Right. So you totally. get the worst of both. Totally. totally. You have no choice and massive amounts of rubbish. Right. No. Right, and it, and it's you know it's all going down the tubes. <laughs> no one will remember, uh, you know, Honey Boo Boo in three years. I promise you. So yeah. what can what can the bunch of academics you mentioned, all of whom are very distinguished in different ways, and the bunch of corporations you mentioned, all of which are very distinguished in different ways, give to one another uh, without giving away trade secrets? What happens when you sit down with Cisco or Warner's? Well, I mean. Partially what you want to think about is that we've moved from an era of push, broadcast, to an era of pull, Netflix. I want what I want when I want it. And yet, most of the media system has not made that shift. In other words, the large corporate firms are still in the business of trying to push stuff at you, whether you want it or not. And making that transition to a world in which content sits on servers that you only get it when you want it you get just the pieces that you want that you maybe have some kind of filter or some kind of curator that helps you find the stuff that makes sense for you that it's 
Because quite honestly, we're living in a world of niche audiences anyway. I mean, let's let's be frank. Mad Men, for all its glory, reaches about a million people on a given week. Um, so, you know, contrast that with, you know, a Super Bowl that reached 70 million people. Uh, you know, most of the content is very niche-oriented. And so if it's niche-oriented, there's no reason to have a channel broadcasting this 24-7. It's just a waste of capital, as you point out. Mm -hmm. And you can look for those long-term trends and explain them and developments. Yeah, I, I think you know one of the cool things about an academic institution is that you, you don't have any skin in the game. So it's easier to go and talk to big corporations and say, look, this just doesn't make rational economic sense. There was a piece in the New York Times this Sunday about, about the box office. There's no actual evidence that says that the summertime is better in terms of box office than the wintertime. In the old days, only about 30% of the hit movies came out in the summer. Today, 60% can come out in the summer. That's because all the hit movies are grouped into this very short window between May 30th and August you know, 26th or something, and they're all crammed in there. Whereas if you'd spread them out a little bit more over the year, you might have had better results. It's also the obsession with young people, I think, that drives that, isn't it? That the right. idea that if you can get high school students who are on their summer break or college students or youngish families to go along, then you've secured something and that your debtors appreciate that because this is the desirable audience. Yeah, but even if you look at, at statistics, Wednesday movie going in the summer is not that greater than Wednesday movie going in, in October. Um, so, I mean, this is not something that makes a lot of rational sense. No, they've got so, myths that they work with. Yeah, and then, you know, one of the things we think about is is a kind of uh, problems that are more game theory problems than they are anything else. And, um, you know, there's a famous notion of game theory called the prisoner's dilemma, in which, you know, two parties have no information about what the other is going to do. And so they usually make the wrong move uh, you know, the classic example is India and Pakistan both spend billions of dollars to build missiles instead of educating their public. But they're no more secure than they were if they hadn't built any missiles at all, if they both agreed not to build missiles. And, by the way, their populations would be a lot better educated. Mm -hmm. So in the movie studios, a, a summer like this one is kind of like the prisoner's dilemma. All these companies dumping out these very similar special effects laden aimed towards teenage boys, you know, superhero with issues destroys a city, you know, and they all come out the same time. Well, that just doesn't make rational sense. And so it could be that a place where companies can get together can talk with each other and can talk with academics and economists mm -hmm. might have more rational ways of approaching the right, market. Right. And that's what the Innovation Lab is doing. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. No, that's true. Exactly. And I wonder if I could take a little diversion from that for a moment um, to talk about you because 
you are an academic, but you've done lots and lots of other things too. Yeah. I mean, you have had a skin in the game. Yeah. In fact, yeah. several skins in a few games. Right. Well, you know, my life started out uh, in the late 60s when I was still at Princeton. I used to work as a road manager on the weekends for a guy named Albert Grossman. And Albert Grossman managed Bob Dylan and the band and Janis Joplin and you know, there's a bunch of pictures of them all up on the wall here. And um, so, you know, Princeton was still an all-male college in those days, so it was really a treat to be able to go out on the road and um, be in a rock and roll circus uh, every weekend. Uh, and then when we, I graduated... majoring in... Writing. English English literature. <laughs> and, and when I graduated from Princeton in 69, I went to work full-time for Albert and moved to Woodstock and worked for the band and Bob Dylan. And um, it was a true joy. It was really extraordinary time. It was a time of uh, ex great creativity. It was a time when artists and politics were kind of merged in a very interesting way in which it was impossible just to be in the game just for money, mm. uh, you know, nobody would have done let their music be the bed for a, an advertisement or something like that, you know. And so, in that sense, the world has changed a lot. Um, Did you love the idealism? I love the idealism. I mean, I'd come out of the civil rights movement in the early '60s. I was in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and so. It was kind of part and parcel. And even though Bob Dylan, who had been my hero and Times Era changing and all that, had kind of left the politics behind, you still, you know, there was a war going on. You couldn't ignore it. And, and so it was part of what you did. And by the way, you know, going out on the road with a bunch of long-haired crazy people in 1968-69 was a political statement in its own mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. um, the, you know, whatever we want to call it, the psychedelic revolution was going on. And, I mean, there was there was a lot going on that was changing things. And, and there wasn't really a notion that young people ruled the world at that point. It was very much, you know, even from Madison Avenue's point of view, was not Sandered on youth, and that only came a little later. A little later, but Hollywood, not long after this, discovers the black audience, doesn't it? Because it realizes that African Americans are going to the movies in greater proportions than their demography would suggest, and it does start to think about but, the youth audience. But you think it? about Hollywood in '68, '69. They were making musicals like Sound of yeah. Music and Paint Your Wagon and Hello, Dolly. I mean, they were pretty much clueless of what was going on. Because I don't believe Easy Rider came out until 1970. Well, it didn't exactly get made with a lot of money from then. And Easy Rider got made very cheaply. Yeah. And because, and you know, I made the transition into the movie business in 1972, uh, 73 actually, because there was a, an opening because what had happened was Hollywood had made all these kind of irrelevant movies, big budget musicals and 
Cleopatra. And, on. I was and gonna, lots of Richard Burton and Liz Taylor. Right, right. Crap. And by movies. the way, yeah. they went bankrupt. Yeah. They <laughs> all went MGM bankrupt. Had to sell everything, didn't they? 20th Century Fox had to sell off the whole back lot, which is now called Century City, just to make the payroll. Right. I mean, Warner Brothers, the Warner Brothers sold out to Steve Ross, this young parking lot heir, you know. (laughs) I mean, I mean, you know, Steve Ross was in parking lots and funeral homes when he bought Warners. Um, So, I mean, it was very small business. And, And so Easy Rider hit. And all of a sudden they said, well, we have no money, so let's hire a bunch of students to make movies really cheap. And so I, you know, came out here, I'd made, I did the concert for Bangladesh with George Harrison, and then I came out here because all the people I wanted to work with had stopped touring, either because of drugs or whatever. They just didn't want to go on the road anymore. And I didn't want to work for Alice Cooper, who was the big touring band of 72. And so I came out here, and I had one name in my pocket, a guy named Marty Scorsese. I think I've heard that name. (laughs) Who was a film editor, basically. And he had edited Woodstock. And the band had been in Woodstock. So a friend had said, you guys will have a lot in common. You both love music. And so I met him. And he had this script called Season of the Witch he wanted to do, which we later changed to Mean Streets. <laughs> and, and I just was so naive, I just didn't know enough that I shouldn't put my own money into making movies. So I put all the money I'd made in the music business, plus I got some friends to put some money in, and we made Mean Street for half a million dollars. And thank God it was a great movie, and we sold it, and... You know, it is a great movie, and, and the poster is on your wall. Yes, uh, it looks terrific. <laughs> and there you are, producer's credit. And, and then I, every person in that, really, you look down. Virtually every person in that. Yeah. You look down now, and their household names. I yeah. mean, De Niro, Keitel, yeah, Scorsese, yeah. right? Uh, Mardik Martin. Yeah. You know, you're all up there. And, uh, and, then, and then I did The Last Waltz, which was to bring my two loves together, the band and Marty. And, and, and it's and, a wonderful film. And, and that was a really good movie that tells you a lot about the music business. And, and so, you know, I continued to make movies and um, found myself in 84 at the Walt Disney Studios as an independent producer and a corporate raider named Saul Steinberg um wanted to take over Walt Disney and break it up because that was the way of the early 80s you know and merger acquisition and destruction yeah exactly <laughs> and uh, he had a financier named Mike Milken who was behind him uh, Mr. Junk Bond Mr. Junk Bond and they were going to buy it and sell off the parks and you know, just break it up completely. And uh, I was lucky enough that I had some friends in Texas that I knew called the Bass Brothers and managed to get them to save the mouse, so to speak. And, and the way it worked was that Disney sold, um, the Basses sold all their Florida real estate, which was all around Orlando, to Disney for stock. 
And so then they put enough stock in safe hands between Roy Dizzee and his family and Walt's family and, and the Bass Brothers that Steinberg couldn't take it over. And so we saved the mouse and then... Are you happy now that you saved the mouse? Yeah, I, I am actually. I actually think it would have been a mistake to break up the whole company. And... and uh, I'm also happy, you know, just from a venal point of view, in that the Bass has paid me as their investment advisor for that. So I actually made more money in four weeks than I'd made in four years as a movie <laughs> producer. And then I went to work for their real investment banker, which was Merrill Lynch Investment Banking. Uh, and I did it for four years, but didn't really like it. It was was at the height of the merger and acquisition boom and and it was just about money and it, and I missed the creativity so I quit that and this is late 80s where I This now? was late 80s mm-hmm. and and went to work with uh, to finance a movie for a guy named Vim Vendors Never uh, heard of him either. Called Until the End of the World. Oh, this is the one that's got sort of people from 27,000 countries yeah, yeah. fighting, talking, singing. Yeah, exactly. Right? And it was a, <laughs> and it was like joining the French Foreign Legion. <laughs> and, I, you know, my marriage was in kind of chaos. And, um, you really were at the end of the world. Yeah, I was. <laughs> and I, so I went off for two years around the world with them. And it was, we shot it in, in like four continents, 22 countries. It was just totally insane. But it's a good movie. I mean, it was... Doesn't it have money from every government in the world? Yeah, 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 it does. So the Australian <laughs> government, the German government, the French government, it has... We use every subsidy trick that could ever be done. This film brought to you by free money. Right, right. <laughs> Somebody else's taxes. Exactly. Um, and, you know, I mean, the, the, the first cut of it was like six and a half hours long. And I was not smart enough to say we should just make this into two movies. That's what I should have done, mm-hmm. you know. But I, Warner Brothers, who had bought the U.S. rights, said, well, you have to get it down to two and a half hours. And from six hours to two and a half hours, you basically lost half the story. You didn't know what the fuck was going on. <laughs> so anyway, but it was a great lesson. And eventually, Vim and I will bring out the six-hour <laughs> Because... That's yeah. the joy of That's, this yeah. new distribution platform. Sure. You know, we'll get it back and we'll put it out on Netflix. Oh, so think about 1900. There's yeah. One of the first examples. Exactly. Again, happening. another movie that was way too long yeah. and Paramount wanted to cut down and, yeah. and you know. And a, a wonderful film in both versions. Totally. I say, totally. Actually. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I seem to remember Vin Vendor saying around the time of making that movie with you... That, 19-whatever was the year of discovering Paul Kelly, you know, the Australian singer whose right. music, I think, is on the soundtrack. Right, it is, yeah. it is. A really wonderful artist. Yeah, I think. no, no, there, there were yeah. so many great Australian yeah. players. And, and you know, you, you had to learn the tricks of co-production, which was, you know, we need an Australian composer, <laughs> an Australian cinema, uh, screenwriter, Peter Carey, uh, we need a French DP and a French production designer, you know, a German director, a German stop. I and mean, then, it was and then a, few, a few sentences uttered in these languages right. on camera. Doesn't right, hurt exactly. Because exactly. I remember, I think it was right around the time of that movie, Green Card came out. 
Well, which is actually kind of a fun romantic comedy. Yeah, if you're yeah. in the mood, it's quite moving. But I think the French said, fuck this for a joke from now on, because I think it was a co-pro. Yeah, it was. We'd like some French spoken, rather right. than the dumbass French guy not being able to speak English right. properly right. and staring at photos of a of toothpaste right. in a toothpaste holder while trying to fool the feds that he's right. really married to somebody. Right, Lovely. right, right. <laughs> yeah, but in any event, the fact is, Putting together financing, be it private, public, local or international, is complicated. And people Very. like me can laugh about it. You've done it and can laugh about it. But uh, it requires all kinds of accidents and possibilities and planning. And every now and then, you might do something for instrumental reasons, but it might turn out well. Yeah. Peter Carey is a pretty good writer. Yeah, no, exactly. Right? And so, I mean, you learn a lot doing these things. Right. And you... Right. You, you learn how to make it work. I mean, after that, I did a movie called Shine, which was, again, Australian film, a little bit of English co-production money. Eventually, we, we took it to Sundance um, and, you know, sold it at Sundance. Uh, Harvey Weinstein didn't sell it to Harvey Weinstein, who was running Miramax at the time. He tried to strangle me in public for not selling it to him. Um, and, and because he tried to strangle me in public, it became quite infamous. And then we sold all the rest of the porn <laughs> rights for like 10 times more than we would have sold them if he hadn't tried to strangle me in public. So, so it was, you know, just a kind of wild ride. And Is that Scott Hicks? Did he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I met him 30 years ago at a wedding. He was going to be, you could see, a big star. And I couldn't work out why I never heard of him again. And then... He shine. did that. He did Shine. I mean, he hasn't really had a great movie since Shine. I mean, Shine was extraordinary. Yeah. And um, I don't know why maybe his choice of material wasn't that good or whatever reason. But, but Shine really worked perfectly. Oh, it spoke to everybody. And, and, and Jeffrey Rush was so good in it. And, he, you know, he won an Academy Award well, for it. Well, he's become a, a major star yeah. based on that. Totally. I mean, he can open movies. Totally. In certain ways. Oh, totally. Yeah. Um, so then, then I ended up uh, starting in 1996 the first video-on-demand company, which was called Entertainer. And it was just purely entrepreneurial startup. Got a lot of companies... Comcast, NBC, Microsoft, Intel, um, to invest in it, Sony, and build up, you know, it was very early days of streaming mm. media. Mm. I mean, quite frankly, it was too early, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did everything that YouTube does now, but in a period when there weren't enough people that had that kind of bandwidth. Um, and we aggregated a huge amount of content. At one point, we had about 7,000 movies from all the major studios except Paramount on it. And, and then we began to get a little too successful, I think. And one of our shareholders was Sony. And they, um, kind of behind our back, decided to do exactly what we were doing. So they called it Movie Link. And then they sold a piece of Movie Link to all the other major studios. Um, and literally over the course of about a month in the late summer of 2002, all the studios stopped giving us content. 
And um, so we had to shut down Entertainer. And then we sued all the studios in antitrust court. But then, needless to say, I couldn't go back to being a movie producer. I was going to say, so I was yeah, suing I'm suing all. your ass. Can I have my trailer back right. on this board, please? <laughs> so um, the dean of the Anwerk School, Jeff Cowan, said, well, I don't care. Why don't you come and teach? And so I did. Mm. And then eventually we won the, the lawsuit. They settled out of court just before we went to trial. And so I could afford to teach. And then, you know, the irony is that a bunch of those companies are now supporters of the innovation lab. I was going to say, these are some of the people who are, but maybe it's a different generation. Yeah, it's a different generation. You're looking at across the table. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) There are some old men and women out to pasture who are gnashing their teeth annoyedly. (laughs) The innovation lab is supported by their successes. So you've been in this game, academia, for a decade, roughly. Mm -hmm. So it's managed to institutionalize you and capture you in (laughs) ways that none of these other things really did. You were much more, you were free-floating, but it sounds to me as though you have a very free-floating brief here. But you're nevertheless an insider-outsider to this world. Yeah. What's your view of universities now that you've been um, I think they're in a very challenged place right now. Um, in, in one sense, you know, the thing that I suppose worries me the most is just that it costs too damn much to get an undergraduate education. And, you know, when I was even as late as the late 70s, I think if you lived in California, you could go to Berkeley for like $800 a year. Um, Today, even if you live in California, it costs you $25,000 to go to Berkeley. Uh, That to me is a real problem. And, you know, I... I suppose I think that it shows that our priorities are really screwed up. We don't mind spending trillions of dollars in Afghanistan and Iraq, but we don't want to spend, you know, $500 billion to subsidize college costs. What was the greatest higher education system in world history? Right. And so that... That really worries me. Mm. Um, and I think the outcomes, because it's so expensive, mm. are much worse than many countries. In other words, people leave college with more debt. When people drop out of college because they can't afford it, so they've gone two years, they've got you know, $40,000 worth of debt, yeah. and then they've got nothing. I mean, they don't even have a degree. So, I mean, that's really problematic. So, you know, one of the ways that the great wizards think is to just put it all online. And that worries me, too. Uh Because I think that part of what's great about a college education is how to learn to think critically. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that comes from the discussion in a classroom with a bunch of people in real time, mm-hmm. people interrupting each other and telling the professor they think he's wrong or whatever that, whatever the dynamic is that comes from a great discussion with a bunch of people in a room together. 
I don't see how that happens in a massive online course. And it also happens outside the classroom because the students bump into one another. Exactly. And they go to the toilet and they share a cup of tea. But think of those bull sessions we had around what was the meaning of blow-up, you know, that went on all night. You know, was it real? Was it, you know, all those things that, you know, is Bob Dylan really selling out because, you know, like, you know, all that stuff. Where are the basement tapes? Yeah. Well, I guess you knew the answer to that. Yeah, but but no, really. I mean, these were... Yeah. These were life and death issues for us <laughs> when we were young. And, and those happen in dorm rooms late at night. You know, and I don't know if those discussions go on now, but, but I assume they must. And, and I just think that that's part and parcel of what I think of as education. So the idea that you could all just do it online and sit in your pajamas and get an education is somewhat disturbing. That isn't to say that you couldn't go to trade school that way. And it may very well be that there's a kind of two-tiered education system where you know, some people just want to learn how to write a SQL database, you know? And that's probably something you can learn very well online mm-hmm. or how to you know, program in Unity or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, those things probably are fine. But in terms of the humanities and, you know, what's what used to be called a liberal arts education, I'm not positive you can get that online. So in that sense, I think the, the universities are really, really challenged. And my hope is that California is beginning to get its act together in the sense that we have a smart governor who has, this is a Jerry Brown, who yeah. was our governor back in the 70s and whose dad right. was the governor that in many ways presided over the freeway system and the real emergence of the University of California. Exactly. System. And now he has managed to raise taxes in a way. And, and, you know, when he did that, everyone said, well, all the rich people are going to leave California, which was total nonsense. The idea that Sergey Brin was going to move to Nevada or Texas to avoid taxes was it's insane. So we have actually a budget surplus now, and hopefully that'll be applied to lowering the costs to go to a college like you teach at. Yeah. And that would be really a good thing. good thing. One of the tragedies is that it's not often recognized in all the debates about whether professor's <coughs> salaries are too high or whether or not there should be iPads given out to every undergrad or whatever, trying to explain for these costs. No one's prepared really to to grasp the nettle, which is political theory has long said, and this isn't just in textbooks, this is everyday life, primary and secondary education, so K through 12, is a social good and the taxpayer should pay for it. It should be available to everybody. Or we're not going to have an educated workforce, we're not going to have a workforce that can have children, and we're not going to be able either simply to control children and channel them, create citizens as well as workers. For quite a long time, in many places, people recognised, actually, that probably applies to making them dentists and lawyers and doctors and office workers and cinematographers and so on. And so, actually, tertiary education is not just about the individual feathering their nest. For many people, it's about doing something they believe in or developing further skills and capacities that are of public use. And so the real difference in the way 
higher education costs are allocated nowadays is that they've gone from being on the taxpayer to being onto the student. And hence, as a consequence of the federal government underwriting loans, they've become boons to these massive loan entities, some totally. of which in any case are federally guaranteed or created themselves. So it's, it's been part a question of being able to make the case to the public, which I think Jerry Brown did, that the UC, for example, or the Cal States, or the community college system, which is the, in a sense, trade element or the pre-college right. element, also a jewel in the crown, astonishing totally. quality, as is the Cal State system. These things are actually public goods. They're not just private goods. Yeah. They're not about rich kids getting a free opportunity to read Wordsworth. There are a few people doing that. WTF. They're about giving skills to everybody in the society who wants them. Right. Because when you look at the unemployment statistics, at least kids with a college degree are down in the 3% unemployment, whereas kids who just have a high school diploma yeah. are at the 11 12% unemployment. Right. Right. And that's a big difference. And, and the problem, that, you know, when you and I were young, and I don't mean to date ourselves so much, but when you were and I were young, you could get a decent job with just a, sure. a high school diploma. You could go to work at the Ford plant for 18, 20 bucks an hour, and you have great health benefits and everything else, and you know, two weeks summer vacation and everything, and those jobs just don't exist right. anymore. Half the kids I went to high school with didn't go to college. Yeah. And they were middle class. They weren't uh, yeah. working class kids. They just yeah. didn't feel the need. Their parents didn't feel the need. Yeah. And but that that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. And and quite frankly the way the world is going in terms of technology, those jobs are all, what jobs there are left in that are going to be taken by robots. Mm -hmm. You know, Foxconn, which is the place where every iPad and every iPhone is assembled in China, announced a month and a half ago it was going to buy a million robots to assemble iPhones. Well, you think, think what the disruption that'll have in the Chinese economy. And they're going to have some of the robots in places like Kentucky as well, yeah, sure. aren't they? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, John, we've got about 10 minutes left. I wonder if we could get veer back in the conversation, thanks for that. those thoughts about universities, in a way to where we began, which was, in a sense, the intra-class conflict of content versus technology, and something that you and I talked about when we met at a great lunch uh, the other day, namely intellectual property. It's something you've touched on a couple of times in our conversation, mm -hmm. for instance, in your startup, right. and how that uh, ran into difficulties once the content owners decided right. that they would play their own game. Right. Not very successfully, one might add, but once they decided to do that. I wondered if you could take us on a, on a trip, not of the entire world of intellectual property debates, but where we are now, because you said when we started, music was in disarray and journalism was in disarray. Right. Um, and I know from talking to you, you're not one of these cybertarian guys who says, forget about the law and ownership and all of that, and just let whatever happen right. happen. What's your take? Well, you know, some of it is a kind of very personal experience, which was uh, when I was young, I worked for this group called The Band. And The Band was a group in which there was a single songwriter, his name was Robbie Robertson, and then there were four other musicians who, who basically played and sang. 
And, and the thing that nobody really understood in 1969, 1970 was that songwriters would continue to earn a good living in the digital age, because the digital age didn't exist in 1969, <laughs> but that musicians wouldn't. Because what happened, you know, and this is a little esoteric, but basically songwriters get paid when you walk into a Gap store and they're playing music, ASCAP and BMI, which are the collection societies for songwriters, get paid for that music that's playing in there or any bar or any elevator. And, and that's because the Gershwins and those other people back in the 30s figured it out. They got a royalty every time on the radio, everything. And, but the record royalties were all dependent on you buying a CD. And if you didn't buy a CD, the, the musicians didn't get paid. And so once Napster and then LimeWire and everything became the substitute for buying a CD, and that a gigantic amount of content went into the pirate realm, um, then the people who were just the musicians went broke. And my experience was Levon Helm, who was the drummer and the lead singer in the band, basically after 2001 when LimeWire really hit, his record royalties, which he had been making $100,000 a year, just dried up completely. And then he got throat cancer and then he had operations and all that and he had no health and welfare and all the, the whole life, his whole life collapsed. And with stage three throat cancer, he had to go back out on the road just to pay for his hospital bills and try and keep his house payments done. And that seemed to me totally unfair. And so I began to look into it. And what really shocked me was that the people who run the big pirate sites, like this guy Kim.com, um, are making millions of dollars off of advertising around the, the content. So you go to a pirate site, Pirate Bay or, or you know, any one of these sites, there are all these ads around there. And, and American companies like Ford and Nationwide Insurance and State Farm are paying to be there because obviously there's a lot of young people there and that's where the young people are. And, the, and, and none of the musicians are making a cent off that. It's just these essentially rip-off artists like Kim.com who are making money. That, again, seemed very unfair. Right, right. And so I take a very different point of view than some of the cyber libertarians that, oh, everything should be free. I think that's nonsense. I think actually artists deserve to get paid for their work. And, you know, the idea that Aretha Franklin at 72 years old has to go hump her butt around and give concerts in order to make a living after all she did in the 60s and 70s, to me, is just not right. Um, I saw a, a wonderful documentary last night on Ginger Baker, uh, the, the drummer from the, the Cream. Truly nasty man in the documentary. It's crazy. Really crazy. Crazy man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's also broke because he was, again, just a drummer. He, yeah. he didn't get the 
Jack Bruce got the songwriting. Right. And he royalty. hates Jack Bruce. Oh, he hates Jack <laughs> Bruce, right? And, and, but, you know, I mean, there again, you know, he was just a drummer. He didn't get paid for all those cream records. Thank God Ringo wrote Octopus's Garden. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's, that's my view on it. And obviously I think that as broadband increases, Everything that hit journalism and that hit music business is going to hit the TV business and the movie business. And, you know, when it, when it doesn't take two hours to download a movie, when it takes two minutes to download then a movie, boom, you're, it, you're going to have the same problem. And, of course, the interesting thing there is that in those industries, res particularly in television, residuals, i.e. the capacity to be paid in perpetuity for your appearances, did work for a whole retinue of artists. And the problem is that today's studios realise that they made a big error with that. They didn't know how many outlets there would be, how many television stations, how many overseas markets would open up and so on. And when it comes to the online domain, they're trying to screw all the people who in an earlier era would have gotten residuals. Well, you know, you, you think about the amount of money that an artist gets from Spotify today in the music business. It's tiny. It's tiny. I mean, I, I think... You know, Bob Dylan, for when his stuff was up on Spotify, like like for two years, earned like $7,000 or some ridiculously small amount of money. I mean, so, I mean, it is, it's tricky. But here's, here's my thought. If the broadband internet has, let's say, in the next two or three years, has three billion plus users. That's a conservative estimate. I mean, even if you're just getting little micropayments from a small proportion of those people, one ought to be able to make a living as an artist in the future. Mm -hmm. Because you have this incredibly robust platform that has an incredibly robust set of standards, TCP, IP, HTML5, you, you, you make it once, it'll run anywhere in any country in the world. Um, there's no reason why if you could give people content at a reasonable price, they wouldn't be willing to pay for it. iTunes has shown that, hasn't yeah. it? Yeah, as opposed to rip it off. You know, so, I mean, that's part of the problem, which is trying to educate content companies to embrace this new, the new platforms um, and think about it in a different way. Stop making, you know, territorial deals where you can play it in France, but you can't play it in Germany. You know, all of this nonsense that yeah. was created during another era in which people sold off rights to individual territories. I mean, that's got to stop. You, you want to have a worldwide release of your content on demand everywhere in the world. I mean, we all know that the, the, pro, the platform is robust enough to carry the individual subtitles for 10 different languages on a single piece of content. You just choose which language you're looking at. You know, I mean, it's, it's not rocket science. All the pieces of that are there. And it's just, you know, 
even Netflix or these big platforms, there's not a lot of new movies on them, you know? And it's because there's this, you know, the Gramsci said we're in an inter, inter, interregnum. The old is dying and the new cannot be born. In that interregnum, there's lots of morbid symptoms. Well, that's where we are in a media sense. The old platforms are totally dying, but the powers that be are warring over what the new platforms are, and and you know, so they're just not embracing. Well, Jonathan Tatman, thank you very much for your time. It's been great talking. And I wonder if I could ask you at some point in the future to re-enter the pod. Take that risk. Take the plunge and come back with us. Yeah, I would. Uh, you know, if a lot of this, and I'm just going to put a little plug. Yeah, I have a book on, on, in the Apple iTunes bookstore called Outlaw Blues, which I think people who are interested in this stuff would do because it's a book with 105 embedded videos inside the book. So it's a kind of extension of these ideas taken to a different way. Wonderful. Well, what I'll, I'll do I'm is... more than willing to come back. Yeah, no, that'd be great. In fact, what we might do is uh, come back and talk about Outlaw Blues. That might Perfect. be nice and, okay. and uh, do that. Okay, great. thanks a lot. Thanks, Toby.